Let's pray together. Father, we are a desperately needy people, and we live in desperately needy times. We beg for your mercy upon the nations of this world, upon our households and community. There is a cultural harvest that is coming in at this moment. It's the result of what we have sown for decades. And as a group of people, we do not acknowledge you as God. And we are watching you do exactly what your word has revealed to us you would do giving us over to all manner of confusion, debased in mind, doing what we ought not to do. We are a people filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, malice, we're full of envy and murder and strife, deceit and maliciousness. And we are a people who gossip and slander, and many hate you openly, and insolently. We ask that you would have mercy upon us, for this is great foolishness, and the end of it is destruction. You have been patient, slow to wrath, slow to anger, as your word says, and yet you will not continue in this patience forever. Sin must be judged. And because you are a holy God, your judgments must come to pass. We are the ones whose hearts are often so hard, even unwilling to repent. And we live in the midst of a people who, as your word says, are storing up wrath. Have mercy on us. Even as we sing with the hope of heaven in our hearts, we know that in these earthly moments, so few, so fleeting. You have called us to forsake our sin and to follow you. And if truth be told, many of us love our sin more than we love following you. But we renounce it. We renounce all that sin this morning. Every fleshly lust, every lust of the eye, the pride of life, things that are not of God but are of this world, we turn away from it and we turn to you, the living God, and we say, have mercy on us and cleanse us and restore us by the powerful blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to walk in fellowship with you and we want to walk in fellowship with one another. We want your kingdom to come on this earth, that your will would be done here on earth even as it is done in heaven we're not singing those words to simply voice a kind of truth, but we sing those words as the prayer of our souls. We are a needy church. Not one of us is perfect. We feel that painfully. Daily, we are reminded of the weakness of this flesh the weakness of our spiritual resolve, our inability to keep our commitments to you and even to one another exasperates us. 
but how thankful we are that there is one who has kept your law perfectly. And Jesus did it for us so that we might have that beautiful gift of his righteousness. Lord Jesus, before you return in the glory of your Father with your holy angels, as Mark's gospel has recorded, we ask that you would have mercy upon sinful nations and families and individuals and that you would bring many, many to salvation before it is too late. Fulfill the promises of your word. Claim the inheritance of the nations that was promised to you long ago and for which you died. And we ask that even in this community, in this assembly today, you would claim individuals, precious people created to know you and walk with you who have not yet come to that place of saving faith. Bless the ministry of the word all across this valley, whether it be read or whether it be taught or preached or even just quietly meditated upon, cause that word to take root in the souls of all who come under its holy authoritative influence. And as it takes root in our souls and hearts, cause it to bear fruit, fruit of repentance, fruit of faith, fruit of holiness, fruit of humility. And while we are reaping a harvest of our sinful rebellion in your mercy, we ask that you would cut that field down and replant with seed of righteousness that there might be a holy gospel harvest. We pray for these things in the powerful, saving name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Do you ever wonder what your sanctification really looks like? And I know that's a $10 word in some ways, sanctification. How many of you use that in a conversation this week, just kind of casually? Anybody? Some of you say, well, thought crossed my mind. As we come into the end of Mark's gospel today, and we are going to get to that particularly sobering topic, as you can see from the title, The Deadly Scandal of Sin. I I want you to even work through this passage with a very personal viewpoint, if you will, an understanding that Jesus loves to change people. And when He created you, He could have just loaded into the hard drive of your soul everything you needed to know about Him, and even wired you up so that you just had to obey, had to do the stuff that that he wants you to do. But that is somewhat robotic, isn't it? Somewhat impersonal. Because you and I are much more than just kind of a divinely created computer system with flesh and blood draped over it. We're actually people created in the image of God to know him, to serve him, even to fill up the earth with more image bearers. I'm going back to Genesis. That's the whole point of the command to be fruitful and multiply. God wants to know you personally, and he wants you to know him personally. And as you know him, he is committed to changing you, even even when you don't think you need to be changed. Now, the story before us today, as we continue through Mark's gospel, includes an element of, of loving transformation, or even sanctification, we could call it. So back to that original question. 
And some of you wonder, well, how, is Jesus changing me and how is he changing me? And you know, he's going to change you and me in a, in a way very similar to how he's changing John, who will be named here in these first couple of verses, and the other 11 disciples. So as I read through this, I, I not only want you to pay attention to the particular truth that Jesus is bringing to the forefront, I also want you to be thinking in terms of how is Jesus desiring to change me? What's in me today, whether it be my thoughts or my attitudes or my actions, that needs to be brought into conformity with him, that needs to be sanctified? Now, let's begin reading. Mark 9, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now that's a whole lot, and it, also, it almost seems to be disconnected at certain points, doesn't it? And if some of you haven't read this for a while or ever at all, you may say, wait a second, now I'm really confused because you were talking about how Jesus changes us, and now we get all the way into this thing where that, some, that last couple of verses even have salt in yourselves? What is that all about? We'll get there in time, so bear patiently. And there are some things in this text that we'll basically pass over without a lot of comment. Here's what I want you to see as we go, begin working through the text. Go back to verse 38 with me, please. And I want you to see Jesus correcting sectarian thinking. Now, that's another term I wrestled with. Should I, should I use sectarian? Because again, that's not often part of daily conversation, but it's actually a really good term. It's a term that conveys an idea of, of forming up into special groups. Cliques is a word you sometimes hear. Some of you began to experience cliques in late elementary school and certainly through junior high and high school, and some of you were in and some of you were out. Some of you have been trying to be in all your life. Some of you feel that, that sense of sectarianism in the workplace you weren't schooled in the place that somebody thinks you should have been schooled in, or you don't have the particular experience, and so you're kind of relegated to another group, uh, even in the context of your workplace. Well, those would be some examples of sectarianism, broadly speaking. Now, here's the problem. Look at verse 38. John is actually protective of the 12 as they follow Jesus, and so he says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. That is, he, he's like, we're, we're trying to prevent him. 
to restrain him. Now, isn't that ironic? You remember the story we just worked through the beginning of chapter 9? An argument had broken out between nine of the disciples and some of the scribes because a father had come to them saying, can you cast out the demon that my little boy has been afflicted with and they couldn't do it? And, and here, apparently, is a man, unnamed, but who, under the authority of Jesus Christ, legitimately so, we'll see that explained, I think, enough in a couple of verses, who actually is casting out demons and relieving people of the affliction, and, and John and the others are objecting. It's kind of pitiful irony, isn't it? Now, there's a second thing in this text, though, that's curious to me. John says, because he was not following us. Now, when I read this, I would expect John to say, he was not following you, Jesus. Now, that would be problematic, wouldn't it? And especially if he was openly opposed to Jesus, rejecting the presence of Christ, rejecting his teachings, trying to establish his own form of religion. Some people think that this is evidence of John's pride and his sense of privilege to be so closely associated with Jesus. And although Mark doesn't spell that out, clearly John has a bit of an insider-outsider mentality that's emerging here. The twelve are inside Jesus' circle. That's a special place to be. And unless you have permission or somebody acknowledges your life as an outsider, you should stay outside and leave the really great stuff for the people who are inside such as casting out demons. You know, sectarianism appears in, in many places, but no place is it uglier than in the context of religion. I was thinking through how many sectarian uh, illustrations there are in the course of history. There are nations like Ireland and Scotland that still feel the strong sectarianism between Catholics and Protestants, religiously as you travel around the world, you have Muslims broken up into Sunni and Shia uh, sectarians, or sects, I should say. They hold many of the same beliefs, and yet there was a disagreement long ago about who should follow Muhammad. And one group said it should be someone descended from his bloodline, and the other group said it, it should be this guy. And so since then, there has been a division into those two different sects. Even in our context, Mormonism has seen its share of sectarian fragmenting, some who call themselves today the fundamental Latter-day Saints, who had a disagreement about a hundred years ago, but have, have splintered off of the main line and sought to establish their own, uh, their own sect. And even, with what, even within what we know as historic Orthodox Christianity, there have been so many splinters and fragments that we sometimes wonder what's going on. Do the Pentecostals have it right? Do the Methodists have it right? How about the Baptists or the Presbyterians? And then there are variations even within those groups, aren't there? You know, if we would follow Christ as he has revealed himself to us in this book and the teaching even in this chapter many of those things that have become points of ugly division would be eliminated. And in verse 39, Jesus says, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Now, that's a little bit of a humorous dig, 
If you stare at that, you'll see it. Basically, Jesus is acknowledging this guy is exercising demons, and, and he's almost conceding a little point to John, like, hey, if he's actually doing this and he's not fully committed to me, well, he's not going to be able to continue casting out demons for very long until he starts giving me all the credit. Because that's ultimately the work of Jesus. So I think it's a little humorous dig that Jesus is making at John. But the bigger point is this. Jesus values all ministry in his name. So there's no insider-outsider game that Jesus has going. We sometimes do that as his followers. But Jesus isn't the one who's creating that culture of saying, hey, some of you are in and some of you are out. The mighty work is a term that we've encountered already in the Gospels, and it speaks really of those miraculous things. Jesus has been doing this. He's authorized his disciples to do it. Here is one who is unnamed to us, but the, the key is that he does it in the name of Christ. Now, lest you think that, or any of us think that just invoking the name of Jesus somehow gives you magic or miraculous powers, you need to understand that that's not the way it works. The name of Jesus is is not a magic incantation that you can just speak over something and have stuff happen. There's a really interesting story that's included in the Acts of the Apostles, and in chapter 19, verses 11 through 20, I won't take time to read it in its entirety in your hearing, but it's a story of seven sons of a man named Sceva who attempted to exercise a demon and use the name of Jesus as a magic incantation. And the story recounts that the demon speaks to them, first of all, and basically says, I know who Jesus is. I know who some of these apostles are. You all I do not recognize. And then physically just beats up the guys and sends them running. So that's one of those reminders that you can't just say, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus, and boom, it happens. No, to to serve in the name of Jesus speaks of actually having a personal relationship with him. To serve in the name of Jesus is to serve in personal relationship with him and the true knowledge of him. I don't want you to separate this from the discussion that Jesus had with his, his disciples just a few verses prior to this. Do you remember the series of questions he asked them? Who do people say that I am? And we considered the fact that there were people who, though they knew about Jesus, had formed wrong opinions and understandings of him. From Herod, who thought he was a reincarnated form of John the Baptist, to the Pharisees, who who did not acknowledge that he was the Son of God sent from on high into the world as their Messiah. All kinds of ideas about Jesus, many of which are untrue. And I would submit to you that for Herod or the Pharisees or some of those other groups that were represented to try to exercise a demon in the name of Jesus would have been as as ineffective as the sons of Sceva. So just because somebody says, I know Jesus or I believe in him, we've got to dig a little deeper. Because even in our world, there are all kinds of ideas and theories and doctrines that have been put together about Jesus the Christ. Then Jesus says, verse 40, the one who is not against us is for us. One author writes, it is necessary to affirm that the name of Jesus discloses its authentic power only when a man joins Jesus in faith and obedience to the will of God. 
The fact that Jesus' power was active in the man, bringing release to men who had been enslaved to demonic possession, marks him as a believer. His action was an effective witness to the eminent kingdom of God. Because remember, Jesus has brought the kingdom to earth. It is breaking into this dark and sin-cursed world. It brings me to a really important point as I look at this and even check my own heart. Do I have an insider mentality? Do you have an insider mentality? Do you ever think to yourself, well, you know, here at Gospel Hope, we do it right. I know there are other churches out there, but... Oh, careful. That's exactly what John was thinking. Jesus, we're, we're the real circle where the power is. Who's that upstart? Uh, actually, he's a follower of Jesus. Not only authorized by Christ himself, apparently, but blessed. He's got the Lord's stamp of approval on his life. So who are we to criticize? It's one thing if a group is out there saying, let us tell you about Jesus. You know, he's not really the son of God. Well, we're going to... We're going to have a quarrel with that. But individuals and groups that affirm the key truths about Jesus, his divinity, the necessity of his atoning sacrifice for for the forgiveness of our sins and our salvation, who, who work through the doctrine much the same we do, oh, maybe with some different points of personal application, but holding to that same orthodox uh, doctrine that is precious to us and that characterizes all of God's people, we should praise God for them, not sanction them. I, I really don't have time to walk you through this whole thing, but I, I want you to remember that little word, theological triage. There are a number of people who've spoken on it and written about it, but Al Mohler may be the most famous. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, but he's, he's written an article titled, A Call for Theological Triage and Christian Maturity. And what he does is to work through categories of importance. And, and as you can see, I've tried to just give a little brief illustration of this. First order doctrine or truth would be those doctrines that are essential to the Christian faith. You believe these things, it leads you to eternal life. You deny them, it actually leads you to eternal destruction. So it'd be things like the deity, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, justification by faith, the authority of the Scripture, the Trinity. You you can't deny those things knowingly and willingly and be a true follower. The second order would be a category of things where the scriptures address them and speak of them, but where there would be legitimate differences of of opinion within God's uh, God's people. Baptism would be an, uh, an example of that. There are some who believe only professing believers should be baptized. Others who are committed followers of Jesus, but because of their view of the covenants and how all those shape up would actually baptize their infants or their children. Um, Ordination of women to pastoral ministry is a biggie, and there are strong opinions there. And sometimes those opinions would mean that that while we would remain friends in the faith, we're probably not going to end up joining the same church together. For instance, I have family members who are 
um, Presbyterian who in good conscience uh, have baptized children. And I say praise God for them. I disagree with that. We'll probably never be members in the same church because I'm just not persuaded of a Presbyterian view. I'm very comfortable in a Baptist context. I was in a Bible church, which is very similar to a Baptist context, okay? So even there's some latitude. But we have great spiritual fellowship, back to my family members and other friends who are Presbyterians. But, you know, I'm not going to apply to pastor their church and probably not going to, you know, strongly encourage them to come here and join our church unless something changes. So those would be second-order issues. Third order would be doctrines over which Christians may disagree and remain in close fellowship, even within a local congregation. And, and there would be differences of opinion here. The doctrine of the end times would be an example. Some of you have it all mapped out, and you're firmly persuaded from the Scriptures that you know, the rapture is the next big event, and then seven years of tribulation, then a millennial kingdom, and then we'll forever be with the Lord. And others of you would say, you know, I've studied that rapture thing, and I actually think it's going to fall three and a half years into the seven years of tribulation. And, and some of you are looking at me like, really? I've never heard that one before. Oh, it's there. And then there's another group that says, nope, Jesus only comes back once. It's coming at the end of the horrible seven years. And you people are in for a big surprise. Hope you're preparing for all this. Well, we, we could all still have great fellowship with each other because we're all affirming that Jesus will return personally, visibly, bodily, right? That's the great hope. So that'd be a third order. And we need to be wise and prudent in doing some of this kind of triage lest we elevate everything to first order and we end up fighting and quarreling much like these disciples have been doing. Remember the quarrel started with who's the greatest? And they're fighting among themselves and then they see a guy out there that they don't feel like has the, the, the proper credentials and authorization and now they're picking on him and Jesus is trying to bring their attention back to what really matters. And so his third point in this particular passage is that he rewards all ministry in his name. Look at verse 41. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ and there he's reminding them. You're not an insider. You belong to me. We're in relationship. But listen, guys, humble yourselves. Someone who gives you a cup of water will by no means lose his reward. That's really significant, isn't it? Especially in this climate. Some of you just have never valued water like you did until you moved here. And I, I got to admit, I'm one of them. Here's the big point. From Jesus' perspective, from the miraculous to the mundane, it's all important and it's all his. And this, what, this is what guards our hearts against that insider-outsider mentality. Everything then becomes significant for us. And even think for just a moment about the context of ministry here at Gospel Hope. I, I love this. Because Jesus is actually sanctifying the ordinary common labor, mowing and cleaning. But that's not less significant in Jesus' mind than if we were holding healing services here on Tuesday nights. We sometimes begin to think that there's really important ministry and then there's other stuff that, eh, I'm not even sure God cares about it. He actually does. And all of it, when it's done in faith and humility... He rewards. 
So as those who belong to Christ, which includes so many of you here, both our giving and receiving of service, whether the miraculous or mundane, is always in relationship to him and is blessed only by and through him. There's no inner circle of special privilege with Jesus. Let's press on here. Now we come to a, a sobering part of this passage, and Jesus is warning against the deadly scandal of sin. And I think he's doing this in part because the disciples are missing the, the critical importance and, and even the, the significance of the hour in which they live. I th- I'll just say this as a gateway comment into this section. It's almost as if these disciples need to be sobered by the realities of heaven and hell. Eternal destiny hangs in the balance for them and for everyone they're speaking to, everyone they're interacting with, and it's true for us too. I don't know where you may be personally on your views of heaven and hell, and a lot of people seem to have formed pretty strong opinions about eternal life or life after this one that is to come. I think it's critical that we listen to Jesus and not just out of our own imagination kind of form some ideas that that maybe give us a little hope or quiet those fears that rise up within us. Is there really a hell? Is there really a heaven? That's hope. Well, let's look at the scriptures together. Now, first of all, Jesus says some are being led to the destruction of their faith. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That little phrase, causes to sin, means to lead astray, to lead into sin specifically. It can even refer to just destroying the faith of an individual. And when Jesus uses the term little one, remember he's been talking about being servant of all, especially the insignificant and powerless ones. And though it's not the same term he's used before, you can still see his heart is one of care and concern and even protection for those who are vulnerable spiritually. And leading a little one astray would certainly stand in contrast to receiving Uh, a child back in verse 37. But now a graphic warning comes at the end of this. Look at the text again. The judgment against such spiritual scandal is not only final but terrifying, and he's actually saying it would be better for him to be cast into the sea and drowned, a great millstone hung around his neck. I shudder to think of drowning. I know death is coming for all of us unless Jesus returns first. There are some ways that I'd be happy to exit planet Earth, and there are other ways where I say, please, God, no. And this is one of them. The feeling of helplessness that must come over, that panic of realizing I need air, I can't get any, the only option for what I can draw into my lungs is something that will kill me. And I pause here and just reflect on what it would mean to drown so that the force of what Jesus is saying would rest on our souls. That would be preferable to whatever judgment he has stored up as judge for those who 
scandalize, as that's the term he uses, and Mark uses here, causes to sin in this context. What does this say to those who are in positions of leadership and influence? Parents who have responsibility to lead and guide children into truth. How do the words of Jesus speak to the father who intentionally leads his children away from Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel? Intentionally leads them into atheism or agnosticism or even a false religion. What does this say to the university professor who seeks to overthrow the faith of students who come under her instruction for a semester or a year? And what does this speak to pastors or elders or church leaders who actually scandalize the faith of others, cause them to stumble away, to move away from Jesus? It would be preferable to experience the crushing pressure of the depths of the sea and the horrific process of asphyxiation by drowning than to face the living God with that kind of guilt on your hands. Now that's sobering, isn't it? Some are being led to the destruction of their faith by others, and Jesus is pronouncing condemnation. But there's a second thought here. While some are destroying are having their faith destroyed. Others are actually destroying their own faith. Look at the next set of verses here, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, verse 45. If your foot causes you to sin, verse 47. If your eye causes you to sin, and and what does Jesus say should be done? Cut it off or tear it out. Now, this is a very Jewish kind of literary device, apparently. Because when Jesus speaks of the specific bodily member responsible for sin, all three of those are essential parts of our bodies. We, we recognize that. All three are wonderful tools or accessories. But at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's, not your, it's not your hand or your foot or your eye that God will ultimately judge. It's you, isn't it? But this is a very Jewish way of speaking of a specific sin, yet with reference to that limb or appendage. And what does Jesus say should be done? Well, those words cut off or tear out refer to radical surgery, if you will, amputation or extraction. It's what we do with diseased parts or gangrenous limbs. One commentator writes, the sinful member must be renounced in order that the whole body be not cast into hell. Conversely, concern for the preservation of a hand, a leg, or a foot must not lead a man to denial of the sovereignty of God or his allegiance to Jesus. Whatever in one's life tempts one to be untrue to God must be discarded promptly and decisively even as a surgeon amputates a hand or a leg in order to save a life. It seems radical, and it is. But it helps us to understand the serious nature, the deadly nature of sin. It leads to destruction, not just hard consequences in this life. If sin is left unchecked, unremedied, in your life or in mine, it will lead to what Jesus is about to tell us next. It's an eternal destruction. And that's where he issues a warning that really becomes unimaginable when you see just the brief description. But before we go there, I want to ask, is there anything in your life that actually is scandalizing your faith? 
Is there, is there a particular sin that you actually say, you know, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not willing to give that up? Really? Because it'll destroy you. And God in his kindness actually brought you into this assembly today. Not, not because gospel hope is such a special place or because I'm such an extraordinary preacher, but in his kindness he brought you here so that this text would be open and that you would hear his word and that it might work to the salvation of your soul because there's an unimaginable destruction awaiting. And listen to this warning Jesus says, cut it off, verse 43, it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. And when he uses that word hell, if, if we are reading the original language and probably even what Jesus spoke, it would have been the term Gehenna. When you study through the Bible, you will find that Gehenna is the final place of punishment for sinners. It's the place, as one author writes, into which the wicked are cast after the last judgment. It is a place of torment both for body and soul. It is not until after the final judgment that the wicked are cast into Gehenna. At the resurrection, the spirit and the body are united. Both are punished in Gehenna. And Gehenna, as the last punishment, was conceived of also as the worst. For here... As Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 28, God destroys both soul and body, not in the absolute sense of annihilation, but relatively in that it permitted a change of state that could suffer the pain and punishment of hell. There are many people who say, that is so horrific, I cannot even think about that. My friend, we must think about this reality. Because our unwillingness to believe what Jesus says does not make the reality go away. Or our desire to redefine it or to import the teaching of others so, so as to dilute the horror of it does not change what is. In Matthew's gospel, he describes Gehenna as a furnace of fire and uses the phrase outer darkness. John describes it as a lake of fire in Revelation 19 and 20. And Mark uses two visit, vivid concepts to describe Gehenna. It is no wonder that Jesus said, and Matthew recorded this in his gospel, chapter 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, there are two particular phrases that Mark uses, and we need to just meditate on these for a moment because the first speaks of a place of unending and conscious torment. When, when, Mark, when Jesus uses the phrase to describe hell, unquenchable fire, there is a vivid image uh, for us that, that lives in that little description. You know, back in Jesus' day, those who lived in Jerusalem were very familiar with the Valley of Gehenna. It was essentially the city dump. And all kinds of refuse was brought to this place and it was thrown into this valley and apparently they were always seeking to burn it down, burn the trash uh, that, that was discarded there. So it was a place where not only was that city refuse dumped, but it was a place of continual burning. 
And this particular fire seems to indicate unquenchable fire. This phrase seems to indicate that Gehenna is a place of unending conscious torment and suffering for those who are condemned to its fire. The second term that Jesus uses to describe this place is the worm does not die. And that would indicate it is a place of perpetual decay. Now, in our minds, we think, you know, the, the decay process can't go on indefinitely. Sooner or later, everything returns to dust particles and then is scattered by the wind. But you must not think just in terms of a physical decay. The worm that does not die is indicative of this process that just continues forever. So while there is a kind of decay underway, it will never come to an end. And Jesus is speaking to people like you and me, saying, you must do everything in your power to avoid this place. That's why he would say with such radical terminology, if your hand or your foot or your eye cause you, scandalize your faith, cause you to sin or to move away from faith in Jesus Christ, you must rid yourself of that. It seems that Jesus is actually quoting from Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 66, the very last chapter of that book. In verse 24, the final words that, that God gave Isaiah to record for us, God says, They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. And listen to this, For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. My friends, these are things that are not only sobering, I mean, they begin to chill the soul. They begin to chill my heart as I think, Danny, what are you holding on to that might lead to your destruction? And some of you say, but you're the pastor. Your faith is in Jesus, right? I mean, you're not telling us that you're not sure whether you're saved today or not. No, I'm just saying I'm wrestling with these words of Jesus because he's saying your sin is serious. And the day I'm unwilling to repent of my sin, whether I've been a pastor, preacher, Bible teacher, whatever my role may have been, but the day that I'm hardened in that saying, I am, I am not willing to repent and any longer believe in Jesus Christ, that, that marks what we would call formally, I think, an apostatizing. But that would be a demonstration that everything I've ever done to that point is bogus. Jesus warns of unimaginable destruction. Is there anything worth holding on to? For these very brief days of life on earth that would cause you to suffer that for eternity? I can't think of one thing. I've heard people say all kinds of things with reference to hell, acknowledging that they, they believe they're going there. I, I'm headed to hell, but at least I'll be there with my friends. No, you won't. It doesn't talk about it in this passage, but yes, you will be there with others, but you will not be in a relationship with them where you have one moment of social, personal interaction that is satisfying. See, because hell is absolute 
destruction of all good. No light, no relief, not one moment of pleasure, not one second of comfort. Conscious, everlasting torment. We need to hear the warning of the Savior who loves us. Now let's look at the last two verses. These verses are challenging, so I won't spend a lot of time on them, but I I think I've been able to put together what I hope would be a very basic overview. Everyone will be salted with fire. Well, Jesus does not judge his followers with fire in the sense that he judges rebels, but he does refine us through fire. And some see a reference to Old Testament sacrifices that were actually salted or accompanied by salt as they were offered to the Lord. And and I think that is uh, probably something of what is going on here. Everyone will be salted with fire, verse 49. But I also think that what Jesus may have in mind is something that you find in Malachi's prophecy, chapter three, verses two and three, that, that speaks of the work Messiah will do. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And that same passage speaks of the work of Messiah like a refiner's fire. If you make really fine jewelry, there's a process where you have to like burn off everything that is not valuable. And so you want the purest gold if you're working in gold. And these are some of the illusions and images that Malachi and other prophets bring to the forefront. The work that Jesus is seeking to do is not a destructive firing of the individual, but a purifying work. So even going back full circle, there's actually some dross in John's heart right now, the insider-outsider mentality. And so I think Jesus is actually uh, salting uh, John with a little bit of sanctifying fire right now. He's confronting the sinful thinking, and he's giving him a, a little course corrective. So Jesus does not judge his followers with the fires of Gehenna, but he refines them through his sanctifying fire. There's a second thought. Look at verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. And this is what I want to focus on. told you I couldn't cover everything. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I think it becomes apparent in the larger context that Jesus just wants his followers to be salty or seasoned as they are in relationship with him. And I say that in part because of his final exhortation. Be at peace with one another. They've argued amongst themselves about who's the greatest. Now they're picking on this guy over here who's not even named. And and Jesus is trying to bring the eternal perspective, saying, listen, there's heaven to be gained or hell to be lost in forever. You guys need to stop arguing amongst yourselves and and let my sanctifying, uh, salting uh, work of, of sanctification just continue in you and be at peace. Peace is part of the seasoning of Christ, if you will. So I just want to kind of actually walk through the, this whole section that we've been looking at. Following Jesus means three big things I want to pull out of chapter 9 as we conclude. Remember he said it means putting yourself last and serving all. Last week we looked at it. Go to the back of the line. 
serve all, particularly the powerless and insignificant ones. Number two, aggressively, even radically, cut off all sin and things that keep us from Christ. And then number three, consecrate yourself completely to him. Even today, if, if there's a particular sin that you're holding on to that in this context you would say, you know what, that could be the, the ultimate destruction of me, then get rid of it. Come to Jesus. We sang uh, several songs at the outset of the service, as we do, I think, pretty much every week, that, that glorify Jesus for his sacrifice on the cross. You know, you can't cleanse your heart of your own sin. Only the blood of Jesus can wash you in that way and make you clean. But it, your part and mine is to confess that sin, to acknowledge it to him, and say, Lord Jesus, I am guilty of this, or I said that, or even thought these things. These are some of the sinful motives in my heart, and I'm just confessing all that to you for the ugly sin it is, and I'm asking you to cleanse me and forgive me. And you know, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not even a partial forgiveness. He doesn't put you on probation for a few days and say, well, you know, it's Sunday. We'll see how you're doing Tuesday, and if you're still on track, I'll issue the full pardon. Well, you get it all the moment you come before him and say, I'm a sinner, forgive me. That's glorious. So there's no need for you to hang on to your sin. And there's a path away from your sin. And there is a path that opens up of relationship with Christ. And so even these, these commands and instructions of the Lord have to be understood in the context of who he is and what he's done. Are you following Jesus? could be that your arguments and even some of the divisions or sectarianism that's in your own heart show where your true loyalties lie. You're not as loyal to Jesus as you say you are. You're actually loyal to self. Even that sin can be repented of today. May God give us the grace to repent of our sin, to humbly serve others, to be the salty seasoning that our world desperately needs and to become more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to ourselves to pool our ignorance or to create out of our own imaginations a form of faith, a form of theology. But you have given us your holy word. You have spoken to us. So we receive this word and ask that you would seal it to our hearts today. I pray for those who are here today who have been brought to that crossroads, recognizing that there is sin that they hold to and actually love more than they love Jesus. Oh, cause them to turn loose of it this day. Oh, Lord Jesus, it is a heartbreaking thought to think that some here would spend an eternity in a place like hell because they were unwilling to cut off or tear out that particular sin and offending member. Give life. Give understanding. Grant your beautiful forgiveness and cleansing that comes through Jesus Christ and let this be a day of rescue from hell. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to do that good work in each of us for your name's sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.